This is a spoiler warning. We are going to spoil the episodes discussed in the show. It's also a free-flowing discussion. We're going to spoil pretty much most of the show aired to date. Uh, we'll do our best not to spoil any of the big finish range other than the episode that's discussed, but you are warned. Problem is, Perry, we are faced with a conundrum wrapped up in a dilemma. Hello, and welcome to The Twin Dilemma, a Doctor Who fan podcast. In each episode, we look at two stories of Doctor Who. One is classic, one's a new Who. We compare them and tell you definitively, no room for error, which one is best. Those are the twins. That's the dilemma. I am your co-host, Fenric Lamar. And I am Edward Grove. Edward, I've got an announcement for you. Do you? I'm pregnant. Oh my god! That explains why you're so morbidly obese. <laughs> yeah, the mica is kind of pushed away from my face. I'm so fat. Yeah, you're disgusting. Yeah, uh, so I'm going to have an offspring very soon. That's good. You're really driving further and further away from the actual theme of the episode. <laughs> yes, our theme this week is offspring. Uh, I'm not actually pregnant. I don't know if you could guess... But uh, some people might say that's biologically impossible. Yes, some would argue. <laughs> no, what our theme really means this week is that we're going to be looking at uh, various attempts to do spin-offs of the original Doctor Who show. And we'll start it off with our entry from Classic this week, quote-unquote. The pilot of Canine and Company, A Girl's Best Friend. What is the Earth year? 1981, December 18th. The doctor last spoke in 1978 Earth years. He said, give Sarah Jane Smith my fondest love. Tell her I shall remember her always. Thank you, canine. Sarah Jane Smith visits her aunt's estate just in time for Christmas. But she's nowhere to be found. Instead, Sarah Jane meets Brendan, her aunt's ward, and finds a gift waiting for her from the doctor, her own canine unit. But evil is stirring in the town of Morton Harwood, as a coven prepares a ritual of human sacrifice. So a little backstory here. This premiered in 1981, just after Christmas. Only one episode ever got produced, the episode we'll discuss today. It ultimately didn't get picked up and brought to series. But the intention was to make a full series where Sarah Jane Smith and K-9 are the main companions. Yeah, it was kind of aired as a special, but they always were eyeing the idea of uh, making a series. So we're... Uh we're calling it a pilot episode. That's accurate, but there isn't any more to be found. And uh, maybe it's for the best. <laughs> Let me ask you, Edward, what do you think of K9 and Company? You know, I really don't think it's that bad. I think it's fairly enjoyable. I just think it, like most things, has been ravaged by time. It's interesting. Uh, you know, as we said, this came out in 1981, and we've talked a fair bit about, say, Colin Baker's episodes. This is the most 80s thing we have discussed on this podcast. Oh, man. I mean, sort of. I can see what you're coming. I can see where you're coming from there. In a way. Yeah. Let's let's start with the theme song. The theme song is the most 80s thing. <laughs> Very kind of electronic, uh, upbeat. Yeah, let's let's give it a listen. I have to admit... Let me let me hear your rendition of it. 
K9. Let's let's sing it together now. K9. K9. Yeah. It's great because you can memorize the lyrics quite easily. I have to admit, this is the first time I've ever dipped a toe into K9 and company. I stopped watching halfway through the theme song and rolled back and just watched it like three times in a row. It's, it's pretty great. It, the song is very catchy and uh, shitty, you know? You know, what I really liked about the opening sequence is if you actually pay attention to what's happening, there are all these shots of like Sarah Jane turning around in like a sudden zoom. You could very easily change the music and make it be about her being stalked by this horrible <laughs> metal dog that's going to kill her. <laughs> I can see that. You could even keep the lyrics. <laughs> Just say them in a more menacing fashion. Just say, kill nine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of uh, shots of her that are very soap opera-ish. They're all soap opera-ish. Yeah, and she's wearing like the, you know, the most 80s haircuts. Her wardrobe in general is really peculiar in this story. When she first is introduced, she comes into her aunt's estate. She's wearing like what looks like a like a Japanese kimono or something. That's one way of... Yeah, I was just going to say weird old lady clothes. <laughs> she's just dressed very like dour and matronly. Yeah. She's not dressed at all like the character that had been established on TV for nearly a decade. And how old is she supposed to be in this? 30? Late 20s? Yeah, something like that. The episode came at me and immediately hit me with something that, for my personal taste, put it in jeopardy. Okay. They sort of reenact my least favorite scene from Macbeth, where we have a, a scene of dark magic and everyone saying, Hecate, Hecate, Hecate. Uh, that's an infamous scene in Macbeth that most likely wasn't written by Shakespeare, uh, is weird and shitty and fuck it, whatever. Anyway. <laughs> and so that starts and I'm like, oh God, what is this? But then after that, I, I think I enjoyed it more than you because it's really just like an episode of Columbo that has K-9 in it. Well, here was, here was my biggest takeaway is that opening scene, before we see K-9, before we see Sarah Jane, we're seeing witches. You know, we're seeing this yes. coven, this cult. And they don't come up again for another like 20 minutes. Yes. There's a, there's a lull there where basically the first chunk of this episode is Sarah Jane meeting a person and then that person telling her the weird convoluted way that hey, they're somehow related to each other. That's not true, all right? The first chunk of this episode is watching Aunt Lavinia and Juno Baker talk about names of other characters you don't know for about five <laughs> minutes. Yeah, and that's what I mean. There's like this whole complex, I don't know, Smith family that... We don't know and we don't care about. Yeah, and they're just that dialogue scene sort of blows my mind because I'm just sitting there just like, you're just saying names I've never heard before and maybe an adjective and then on to another name and it's an adjective and I'm just like, help, throw me a fucking, <laughs> yeah, throw me a lifesaver here. Like, what's like, bring those shitty witches back. <laughs> but no, listen, you need to unplug from the Matrix, sir. This is early 1980s British television. They're not whizzing around having plot. <laughs> Only so much is going to happen in 50 minutes. It starts to pick up a little bit once Brendan shows up. Well, even I, I got to, we have to give uh, Sarah Jane some respect. I do really like that right away, 
she is smart and she hears that supposedly, you know, her aunt is missing, right? And she hears supposedly she sent a wire, but she never received it. And so the first thing she does... Uh, yes, this is Morton Harwood, double seven eight. Could you tell me if a cable has been sent from this number during the past two weeks? So immediately, you know, her investigative detective skills aren't lost. She's not suddenly a dummy, you know? Yeah, that's fair. And I appreciated that. Doctor Who's done a lot worse women over the years. <laughs> <laughs> but Brendan comes in and he's a... Uh... He's the Adric of this show. <laughs> he looks kind of like Adric. That's interesting. He is a bit better than Adric, though. That yeah, I do. I actually liked Brendan. If you uh, if you gave Adric like a vitamin shot, and suddenly he had some energy. However, they never gave Adric this laugh. K nine, Mark three. K nine. <laughs> Brendan, stop honking. You may have been bothered by his laugh. What bothered me about Brendan was that. Everyone kept calling him Aunt Lavinia's ward. Yes. Like that was just a normal thing. Like Batman has a ward. In Britain, can you just take a child? <laughs> can you just take a child and be like, well, he's my ward now. And then the parents are like, well, what are you, what are you going to do? They've got money. Correct me if I'm, I'm incorrect about this. That means that he's unadopted. Seemingly no legal or familial relationship whatsoever also, uh, little to no friendship between him and Sarah Jane. They've never met before. She doesn't really seem to even care for him that much by the end of the episode. You know, that, that was a weird thing, is that there's a lot of moments where the plot develops in a new way, and Sarah Jane leaves the room. Like, yes. for example, the, when K-9 for, shows up for the first time, she opens this box, and it's a present from the doctor, and it's K-9. And she's like, oh, that's really cool. I'm going to go to a party now. Yeah. <laughs> But we can't just touch on that briefly. That's probably, were this to be a series, the most important part of this show. It's a mechanical dog. No legs. No, sort of wheels. But what do you think it does? Well, we could try asking it. Chump. We're taking it for a walk next. <laughs> hey. Mistress, don't walk about. It wasn't me. I spoke, mistress. And canine delivers a message from the doctor. So... This kind of retcons the horrible treatment Sarah Jane got with her departure from the TARDIS. Well, let me just say this. You're going to find out something very interesting about that in trivia. Oh, I am very excited then. I guess we can't talk about it much more than can we? Yeah, I don't want to spoil it because it is a, it's very weird. It's a whopper and a doozy. It's a whopper. It's a woozy. But this is K9 Mark Three. Yes. Yeah. So it's actually really interesting that even though this special presumably only aired once and it didn't make it to I, you hate it so much you presume they didn't even do every run i'm it. sure i mean like why would they why wouldn't they it's money for old rope <laughs> throw some ads throw some ads for old rope on it <laughs> and make a nickel <laughs> and it never went to series but that single premise the idea that the doctor ended up giving sarah jane canine mark three yeah is important to the canon of doctor who amazingly important weirdly important and yeah. oddly uh inexplicable otherwise watching this made me realize oh yeah that never made sense before i've always had like a hole there that i didn't i've always got had a hole there that i wanted filled you just you discovered a new hole <laughs> you, your fingers were crawling across the landscape of your body and you discovered a new magical hole with strange sensations and a and i wanted people to put an offspring inside of it it's a beautiful story <laughs> So this is almost 
the most positive things you can say about this, and it's not that positive. This is like a shitty version of Hot Fuzz. I thought the same thing, because it's kind of, you know, the town is like a weird cult. Yeah, and it's English. A couple of the, these cult members attack Sarah Jane, and it seems like she uses Venusian Aikido on them or something. She, she flips some guys. I didn't actually put it together that that might be Venusian Aikido. That's pretty... That would have been great if she actually did a Venusian Aikido in the show. Yeah, if she just mentioned it. Yeah. Because it wasn't anything like how John Pert, you know, when John Pertwee would fight, he would do like karate chops. Well, he was like struggling not to break his his weakened, decalcified spine. (laughs) (laughs) How old do you think he was? Wasn't he in like... 175. Okay. Yeah. I'm really good with ages. (laughs) So I did want to talk about the fact this is sort of a Christmas special. Even at the end, K-9 sings, I wish you a Merry Christmas. Very nice. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. But other than that, it's like, it's in England. Like, why is there no snow on the ground? Yeah, it's incredibly un-Christmassy. It also has a very bizarre line about it that represents a strange worldview. They say, The Americans don't go much on Christmas, do they? Yeah, I heard that too, and I was like, wait, what? They, you know, we've got like a whole month that could just be called Christmas at this point. <laughs> Anyone in the UK who's listening, we go much on Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, the I think the issue is that they watch, you know, our Christmas movies and they don't see us wearing paper crowns, so yeah. they assume we're not celebrating. There's literally an ongoing battle in this country referred to as the war on Christmas. Yeah. I've got I've got two little quibbles, two minor gripes about this story. I would love to hear them. So one is that the, the second ritual scene, when we head back into the coven, Peter Tracy, that's the character's name. No one will remember it. <laughs> no one will remember it. No one will remember him. He's dead probably. Probably not. He's I actually I, th- I think he's a little memorable because he's kind of, he comes off creepy. Oh, wait, is it, this is the nope. sun, isn't it? <laughs> it's the sun. Oh, shit. All right, well, never mind. <laughs> So once he's dressed like Liu Kang, everything looks so fucking goofy. <laughs> the whole coven was just kind of goofy. I mean, but, like, you know, it was acceptable goofy before that. They didn't need a red sleeveless gi to be introduced. <laughs> the, the, the leader of this weird cult, it's like they didn't put any voiceover over just the guy yelling behind that giant mask he was wearing. Yeah, that's fair. Descend upon the body of thy servant and priestess. I mean, the whole thing is kind of pathetic. It's just all about crops. (laughs) (laughs) And they never even really make it clear as to whether or not they can do anything. But no, here's the other real gripe, which is this is really common in this era. And shows still do this. But why do they have to cast so many goddamn English people that look exactly alike? There was a moment at the very beginning of this story where... Sarah Jane first arrives at the the estate and Peter answers the door and then she he's like, you've got a phone call or something. So she runs inside and she answers the phone and then it cuts to Brendan in a phone booth and he yeah. looks exactly like Peter. And I thought that he just teleported all of a sudden. Yeah. Brendan, Peter, George, PC Carter, at best they all look like different evolutions of the same Pokemon. <laughs> That's the most you can say about them. What would be the base level? Oh, Brendan? I think Brendan, probably. Uh, and probably George is going to be like, the, I, I guess we're going mega evolution at this point, so I put four <laughs> down. 
All right, one last question. Had this gone to series, would you have watched this show? Yeah, I suppose I probably would have at some point. I mean, I would, you know, if it was if they gave it at least a full season, I would be like, I want to check it out. I would have watched the show because I don't think it was that bad. And I think given, you know, it, they did a lot of busy work setting stuff up and I'm not sure what was really going to stick around. Like, I'm, I think obviously Sarah Jane, K-9 and Brendan were main cast. Yes. I don't know about Aunt Lavinia. I don't know about Juno. I don't know why they were working so hard on this town. This could be a good show. Give it a chance, BBC. Now's the time. Now is the time. Now's the time when she's dead and he's, I don't know, who knows Let's what he say is. dead. <laughs> Best case, dead. Yeah. Merry Christmas. With our discussion of K-9 and company done, here's some trivia. Ian Levine wrote the theme song, but simply built an electronic demonstration of what it would sound like with the intention of recording a real orchestra. This was obviously never done, and his demonstration was used as the actual theme without his permission. That is fucking hilarious. <laughs> right? He must have been sitting there, like, in tears when it broadcast. Yeah, the only difference is that they had John Lason come in and record K-9, and then they, they put it over... K-9! <laughs> if you really love this theme song, good news, you can actually get it on vinyl. Wow. It was released in 1983 and comes with a B-side called The Leisure Hive. I don't know if that's like a song from the show, the, the episode The Leisure Hive. Well, I hope you're ready for your next birthday, Fenric. <laughs> <laughs> Ratings for the pilot were actually strong. It was only not brought to series due to a changeover of channel controllers at the BBC. That's believable to me. I think it's really not that bad. Well, if you're mad about it not going to series, you can blame a guy named Alan Hart, who apparently didn't like it. Well, hopefully he's dead. This is a really, we're wishing death on a lot of people. Maybe he had a heart attack. This is the first Doctor Who Universe Christmas special. Christmas had played in, though, in a regular episode, The Feast of Stephen, part of the story, The Daleks Master Plan. Unlike you, I anticipated you to say the last clause of that and was not waiting to jump in about the Feast of Stephen. But isn't it interesting how, uh, how many things I know? <laughs> this story is not the first to feature K-9 Mark III. He was introduced in a short story written for the Doctor Who Annual 1982 called Intergalactic Cat. What the fuck? Yeah, I, I only read a synopsis. It's about like a evil computer. And as far as I can tell, cats are not involved. But uh, it was a story that featured the fourth Doctor traveling with Adric and K-9 Mark III alone. Just them. Wow. Weird. In 2009, another K-9 spinoff was produced called, get this, K-9. It was made for Australian television, and it was neither licensed nor created by the BBC. It was, however, I'm not mistaken, created by one of the original creators of K-9. Yes, Bob Baker. So it's like a, sort of like the highest form of fan fiction. <laughs> sure. Uh, but this one actually went to series. They made one full season, and they're still talking about making a movie based on this series that features Omega as a villain. Yeah, but like John Leeson won't have anything to do with it? I don't know. What does it matter? You just, I mean, they, there's a whole season of Doctor Who where John Leeson isn't the voice of K9, but I mean, it's fucking obvious. K9! K9! 
This was the first Doctor Who universe story to run more than 30 minutes. Huh. So here's that juicy trivia. This, of course, never came to fruition on screen, but according to John Nathan Turner's original pitch for the show, it was going to turn out that K-9 was actually sent by and was under the control of the Master. Oh, damn. Right? Oh, that's really cool. It's so weird that the titular character turns out to be evil, I guess, for, I don't know, the first season. I'm trying to sort of wrap my head around how that would make any sense, but it's a fun idea. Why does the master care about bothering Sarah Jane Smith? Yeah, exactly. But again, fun idea. Agreed. We'll now move on to our quote-unquote new Who entry this week, the pilot episode of Torchwood. Everything changes. We don't just catch aliens. We scavenge the stuff they leave behind, find ways of using it, arming the human race for the future. The 21st century is when it all changes, and you got to be ready. But who's in charge of you? Is it the government or what? We're separate from the government, outside the police, beyond the United Nations. In this series premiere, written by Russell T. Davies, everything indeed changes for Gwen Cooper when she discovers the Torchwood Institute and is swept up into a world of aliens, death, and a seemingly immortal Captain Jack Harkness. All right, so Torchwood. Yes. I guess a little bit of background for those who don't know. It's the spinoff spearheaded by Russell T. Davies, but he wasn't actually the showrunner. It was Chris Chibnall. It was Chibnall Chris Chibnall. For se- series one and two. I believe so. And then uh, RTD grabbed the reins again for Children of Earth and Miracle Day. But this was the spinoff following Torchwood and then specifically Captain Jack Harkness, Gwen Cooper, Tosh, Ellen, Yanto. Don't need to name the whole cast. A bunch of people that turn out to be much more expendable than you thought. Yes. <laughs> And yeah, uh, if you haven't seen Torchwood, we're probably going to say some spoilers about Torchwood. Uh, Most likely, we're not going to have other opportunities to talk about Torchwood as a whole on this show. So expect some broad spectrum Torchwood discussion to happen. Sure. Spoilers incoming. That being said, what do you think of the pilot? What do you think of Everything Changes? As far as a pilot goes, I, I don't actually think it's that great of a pilot, but it's a good episode, if that makes sense. I kind of agree with that. Like, I feel like it's a pretty good pilot because I think, you know, you you do have to recognize if you're writing this that you don't honestly face the same challenges a normal pilot does. People who are watching this are coming to it with a, a whole bag of knowledge, <laughs> a separate <laughs> bag of expectations. And I feel like Russell D. Davies was deliberately deconstructing certain things and playing off of bits of information he knew the audience would already have. So I, I, I kind of know what you mean, like, as a normal pilot, it doesn't do a lot of normal pilot things, but I don't think it should have. But I, I enjoy it. I think it's a good episode. In general, Torchwood Series 1 is pretty bumpy for me. I think the show finds its footing more in Series 2 and then becomes really great in Children of Earth. Yes, very great. But I enjoy this episode. I think you've got uh, a pretty compelling story happening here. Like, if this is a, an X-Files episode and there's one story that's happening this week, it's mostly focusing on the gauntlet. Yeah. The glove, I believe they call it. Sort of. I mean, it, yeah. I think the, that's probably the main weakness of it, is what is the monster of the week? That's, that is the biggest problem of it for me. Uh, not so much... I really like the concept of the, this gauntlet that you put it on a dead person and then they have two minutes of bringing that person back to life. Yeah. You know, they try to figure out if this could be used for some sort of criminal investigation. 
And the problem keeps being that two minutes is just not enough time yeah. when all the dead person can focus on is the fact that they're dead. Yeah. You know, because the pitch of this show is it's Doctor Who for adults. For me, it really feels like that the moment when they bring this uh, guy who's just been murdered back to life and they ask him what he saw after he died. Tell me, what was it like when you died? What did you see? John, tell me what you saw. Ten seconds. Nothing. I saw nothing. Oh my God, there's nothing. Speaking to what you said, that's something I do like about this episode. I think it presents a really clear vision for how this series is going to fit in to the Doctor Who universe and what the tone and just overall story of this series is going to be. But that moment in particular, you know, I've always had the slight sense, the slight sort of tang of atheism <laughs> in RTD's Doctor Who universe. Yes. And not in a negative way, in a positive humanist way, in that a human life experience was enough for things to be magical. You know, sure. a, a, a sensory experience was enough to be blown away. You didn't necessarily need uh, the spiritual to have the numinous, so to speak. And I thought that this was really the first time where he was like, okay, now we're grownups. Let's say there's no God. <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, I killed him. Yeah, and I killed God with this gauntlet. And RTD just walks into the shy. <laughs> I say this had a very clear vision for the show. This episode is a bit darker and more adult than Torchwood would eventually settle on. Well, so there, there is one thing about that is Torchwood in general, something that always bothered me. It's, it's Doctor Who for adults. But I feel like there's only really one episode in the whole series that attempts to be adult scary. Like there's a lot of adult themes like sex is very prevalent in this show. Yeah. I mean, even so much as... Owen Harper's storyline in this episode is that he's using like an alien pheromone spray. All right. Well, if you're going to jump into that, I've got to derail you because okay. I've got it marked down. We have to discuss the amount of borderline date rape that occurs <laughs> in this episode. It's so weird that like, you know, the end of the episode, he brings it back into Torchwood and like the team learned their lesson, you know, don't bring stuff yeah, out of. Don't date rape. No one ever like is like, hey, isn't that the shit that we could use to date rape people? Owen goes to the bar, hitting on a woman. She has no interest in him whatsoever. Spritz, spritz. Bloody hell, fire. You're coming over me, you are. Right now. She's all over him. <laughs> then her boyfriend comes up to him. He's really mad. Spritz, spritz. I'm so avid you. I'm avid him first. Twitchy. Now he's going to fuck the boyfriend. Yeah. Do you think he had sex with both of them? I think he date raped both of them. <laughs> <laughs> and if that wasn't enough, Jack basically roofies Gwen. Yep. Well, that's tough shit. Because if you let me go, then I have a duty. I can tell them what you've got because that glove could help us. If you remember. What do you mean? How's your drink? Yeah, that's a thing that happens. He slips through the old amnesia pill with a dash of retcon. Yes. And I love that that cuts down, too, in the show when they're trying to erase somebody's memory. They just say, we retconned them, which yeah. is a fun little joke. Great about uh, date rape joke. <laughs> <laughs> but, but just volume-wise, there's a lot of date rape stuff in this episode. It's Cardiff, baby. <laughs> there's a scene where they go into a bar, and the entire bar is just having a brawl. And it's presented as if, like, this is what life is like in Cardiff. Like, that's the intention of that scene. And I'm like... 
I mean, I don't know. I really don't. But that that just seems wrong to me. Well, they are the police, though. So it's like that. That's what life is like for the police. Maybe somewhere. Yeah. yeah. But let me go back to what I was saying. Now, there's one scene in this that's intended to be scary. It's when Gwen first sees a weevil. Yes, the weevils. And it just sort of stands at the other end of the hall. It feels Doctor Who scary, you know? Yeah. The, the hallway is very well lit. Well, there is a very distinct moment in that that stands out, though, however, when the weevil bites the bystander and a massive spurt of bright red blood comes out. Yeah. That doesn't happen in Doctor Who. No. I swear that that happened in uh, our, our, one of the Slitheen episodes. Arterial spray happens in World War Three. I swear, like, the Slitheen just, like, farted so hard on somebody, his face, like, ruptured. Oh, no, that's just, it farts blood. Oh. You can do that in a kid's show. <laughs> the Slitheen goes, oh, my hemorrhoids. <laughs> but let's, uh, let's talk about the weevils a little bit. Okay. There was a period where they were just dancing around the Doctor Who universe and I feel like we never really got much of an explanation about what or who the fuck they were. Yeah, I mean, well, the whole idea is that they're uh, not, you know, in- intellectual. They're, yeah, they're not intelligent beings. Generic aliens. Yeah. The real question is, like, how they get into the sewers under Cardiff? We get an explanation here from Jack. He says... We've got a couple of hundred of them in the city living in the sewers, feeding off the... Lots of sewers. You can guess. I can't guess. It's got to be shit, right? Does he mean shit? It's shit. It's Torchwood. And it's Russell T. Davies. He's talking about shit. They don't look like they would feed on shit. They look like they eat people. You'd think, right? Because one we we see eat a person sort of. They've got like canine. (laughs) They've got very pointy teeth for eating shit. Maybe it's it's like a fang and it uses it to like suck it up. If they eat shit, they're a lot less scary than they've ever appeared to me before. Well, it's weird because this is the only episode where I feel like weevils are intended to be scary. There's that scene. But then after that, it's just like they're they're like the episode opener. They're like, oh, we got to deal with this weevil. And That's then true. they run into what the real story is. That's definitely true. Yeah. I guess really when we get down to like what's the monster of the week of this episode, it's probably Captain Jack. <laughs> the date rapist. <laughs> but really, it's told through Gwen's eyes. And he's the big mystery. Okay. But if you look at the actual episode... The bad guy is Susie. And that, that leads to my my favorite, what I think is the best written scene in the episode. That's the betrayal scene, standing outside of Torchwood 3. Well, that's what I've been working for. All day and all night, the rest of them go swooning about while I'm working. you got to get inside this stuff. You surrender yourself to it. I did with a knife and the glove. And that's why the perception filter isn't going to work on me. <laughs> I think they do such a good job of making her seem real in that moment. She's not arch. She's not like, it doesn't feel like the culmination of her plan, the way she sort of like ineptly produces the gun, you know, she kind of like struggles for it. Yes. That scene is a murderer admitting to a murder while attempting to murder the main character and then also attempting to murder another main character, shooting them in the head successfully. And the performance is so emotional, you still really feel something. Yeah, I think that that actress does a very good job. I do, I have a, I feel like that seems a little bit of a mixed bag for me because... Well, it's, you're a jerk. It's a culmination of the, the what I think is the weakest part of the story, which is just Susie being a bad guy at all. 
Like, so, uh, what, do, what do you think is weak about that? Like, I recognize that the episode needs to have a bad guy at the end. It feels very rushed. Like, they're just like, okay, now we got to get to the bit where she saves the day. I don't feel that way in it. I think, particularly when you see it a second time, it really fits with everything you've seen in this episode. There's a moment that's like almost a bit of a thesis for the show on sort of multiple levels where Jack is explaining Torchwood. Because if one power got hold of this stuff, they could use it for their own purposes. But so could you. All alien technology stays on the base. No one's allowed to take anything outside. And then it cuts to everyone doing that. Yeah, and that's that's a really great little moment. And it's like everyone in this show is a bit of an evil fuck up, which is to say basically they're human. And I feel like having Susie... Owen's a little bit worse than human. <laughs> I agree. But he ends up being like my favorite character of the show. But I feel like having Susie represent how bad that can go is a pretty critical element to the sort of uh, moral landscape of Torchwood. That's a good point. And that is one thing about this pilot that it really nails is if there's one adult thing that they're really going to do, it's that moral ambiguity. Yeah, absolutely. Something that uh, Doctor Who increasingly dips and wades its toe into, but always seems to insist there is a right answer. Children of Earth is maybe the only thing in the Doctor Who universe where it was like, what if there's not a fucking right answer? Yeah. What if there's a really, really hard situation? And that's, uh, it's fucking great. And if you, if you could only watch one season of Torchwood, watch Children of Earth. So goddamn good. Very final shot of this episode. Jack. <laughs> I know this is going to be. I think. Jack is offering a job to Gwen. And then it pulls out. <laughs> and they're standing on top of Millennium Center. A building seemingly with no way to get up on top. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is not the first, but the second time in the episode where we see Jack Batmanning. Yeah. Where, you know, he's just up on a building looking down the at Cardiff. The first one's way worse. Yeah, because why is he up there? Well, I mean, why aren't they up there in any well, of why these? Why is he there alone? It's even weirder. Yeah. Well, he's Batman. I honestly thought you were going to talk about what's even weirder to me in that shot, which is they pull all the way out yes. to the pterodactyl. <laughs> the pterodactyl is just flying around Cardiff. So they just let that thing out? Torchwood is not very secretive in this. I mean, the whole, they resurrect a body in an alley and they don't even put up a curtain. <laughs> I I love the joke that uh, they order pizza a lot to Torchwood. Yes. And before we go any further, who the hell orders pizza under the name of Torchwood? Uh, yeah, that'd be me. Sorry, I'm flat. Yeah, they, uh, they're not trying very hard to be a secret agency. Well, why do you need to when you can just uh, date rape everybody? Oh, good point. <laughs> Maybe after, when, uh, when RTD comes back to it someday, the sequels to Miracle, they will be Torchwood colon date rape. <laughs> date rape night. Beautiful. Now that we've discussed everything changes, it's time for some trivia. Indira Varma, who plays Susie, had been credited and advertised as a series regular to guarantee that the audience would be as surprised as possible by her betrayal and death in the pilot episode. You can see her name in the opening titles. That's pretty cool. I like it when they do that. This episode had the working title Flotsam and Jetsam, taken from Captain Jack's line about Flotsam and Jetsam falling from the rift and landing in Cardiff. All sorts of things get washed up here. Creatures, time shifts, space junk, debris. Flotsam and Jetsam. Sounds like Cardiff, yeah. Hey, 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 don't knock it. I'm a citizen. <laughs> I like what they went with more. I like the title they went with more as well because it becomes kind of a catchphrase 
for the show. And I like that catchphrase, actually. I like the idea that this is a pivotal moment for humanity. But uh, I don't mind the other title as well. I feel like we've heard that as a working title for another episode, though. I think that's something RGD must have been kicking around. At this point, like if they made Torchwood now, would they say the 21st century is when everything changes until Stephen Moffat takes over? <laughs> until Stephen Moffat and changes, then it changes it back, back. <laughs> and then changes it again. I mean, it's still accurate. Shit changes a lot. The premise for the opening scene, wherein a corpse is reanimated in an alley at night, was actually taken from a pitch RTD and Julie Gardner had for a previous series that would have been named Excalibur. In the season two opener of Torchwood, Captain John Hart makes fun of the name Torchwood, saying it should have been called Excalibur. Oh, that's funny. When the series premiered, it aired the first two episodes back-to-back in a special 100-minute presentation with the combined credits at the end and set records for the highest-ever ratings on BBC3. Some have drawn comparisons in the way this episode is structured to Rose, with Rose as the emotional touchstone for the audience, through which they learn about the mysterious Doctor. Only in this case, we replace Rose with Gwen and the Doctor with Captain Jack. Isn't that the beginning of, like, every companion's story? Yeah, that's my one criticism about it. It is pretty accurate, though. If you overlay the two stories, they actually are structured more tightly than that generic thing. There's a lot in common with the way the scenes flow. Although uh, the Doctor does resist the temptation to roofie Rose. I was going to say, he's nice enough to just demand forget me. Yeah. <laughs> Captain Jack at one point mentions that he's been pregnant and says he's never doing that again. This is either consistent or inconsistent with news reports that can be heard on Satellite 5 saying the face of Bo is pregnant, depending on how fucked up you think his timeline is. Well, yeah, when I heard that, I was trying to make sense of it. It sounds like the joke is, oh, I'm never doing that again because we know he will be pregnant again. But it's like, how has he ever been pregnant? What's going on? I think it's just a dumb joke. If you want to hear us discuss Satellite 5 and all of the long game, it's in Twin Dilemma episode 13, Dead Air. Torchwood is notable for being the first Doctor Who production released post-Watershed, giving it a much more adult tone. This story features multiple firsts along that line, including the use of the F word, something we would never say. (laughs) Yeah, fuck that. The adult tone overall would remain but many of these decisions would soften over the series. Not as much cursing, not quite as much sexy times. But yeah, it gets uh, a little more murdery. So that's something. Yeah, but Doctor Who's murdery. Yeah, that's true. Everybody's murdery. And this episode's very murdery. Especially me. I'm very murdery. A guy gets shot in the head right on screen. And also a guy gets his throat ripped out. (laughs) And a guy gets stabbed. I don't think it gets more murdery. (laughs) Countryside is pretty murdery. Yes, yeah. That's more that it gets cannibally. And with our two discussions over, that can mean only one thing. It's time for the dilemma. No, you have got to make a choice. All right, so, Fenric Lamar, I know that you really liked Canine and Company. Canine. Canine. I, uh, if it was just the theme song, I might go for K9 and Company. What's your pick? Everything Changes, I think. All right. Uh, well, I'll go with Everything Changes as well. Let's go with Coin Flip. Let's do it. This week, nothing changes. Okay, so then I'll pick Tails because I always do. <laughs> oh, nothing does change. You really fucked up that catch. 
Okay. Uh, nothing changes. <laughs> always win. Always uh. win. Always win. <laughs> yep. Okay. So I will be defending a girl's best friend, K9 and Company. Let me tell you, you're this girl's best friend. Well, that makes me feel appreciated. It really softens the blow. You're going to lose. <laughs> In the same way that Torchwood is about the 21st century. <laughs> I'm already loving this opening gambit. You know, uh, Torchwood, 21st century, that's when everything changes. 1981, 1981. when everything changes. It's when everything gets uh, more uh, moosey. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a show that shows its age, uh, but isn't afraid to. <laughs> <laughs> There's no, like, George Lucas thing <laughs> going back and adding eyelids to Ewoks. No, none of that. Yeah, that's true. K-9 is enjoyable in this episode. Sarah Jane Smith, as we said, she's in top form. I will say this. The beauty of K-9 and Company is in its simplicity. It's a straightforward pilot. It gets you into the characters, gives you enough time to figure out who they are and why they're related to Sarah Jane in a weird convoluted way. <laughs> All right. So let's deconstruct that sentence for a moment. The beauty is its simplicity. Blah, 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 blah. Convoluted. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I those are different things. <laughs> one's talking about the episode, one's talking about these characters. One's talking about the episode, one's talking about the content of the episode. Exactly. Gotcha. Following you. We're right there together. <laughs> so we get to know, we already knew who Sarah Jane was, but we get to know Brendan. We figure out what this team of three people is going to be like, and then we jump into the mystery of this. We jump in right the hot half an hour through this 50-minute presentation. <laughs> We're right there. Sort of, we've sort of progressed from the first minute and a half. This is opposed to Torchwood that uh, attempts to be kind of complicated. It, it, it gives almost every member of the Torchwood team, I would say except for Yanto, it gives everybody a story there mm -hmm. uh, to fulfill in what? It's only like 42 minutes. Yeah. It's pretty short. It's all very flattering to everything changes. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for pointing all this out, how much more it gets done. My point is, if you're the come home from work, want to turn on CSI because it's on, you, you want to you watch something that's not going to make your brain hurt. <laughs> Y'all mean? Okay, so your, your point was uh, to condescend to a hypothetical listener and insult anyone who watches CSI. <laughs> it's not even still on, is it? I bet there's some iteration. Some CSI Mars or some shit. <laughs> That would be good. I would watch that. I was going to say, we'd be watching that if that existed. That's Doctor <laughs> Who, basically, isn't it? <laughs> a couple episodes. For me, if we're going to look at the story and compare story-wise, why is Everything Changes Better? Because I don't dislike the story as much as you do in A Girl's Best Friend. I don't know what you're talking about. I love the story <laughs> in Canine Company. It's the best. Uh, bad title, though. A Girl's Best Friend really just emphasizes, isn't it novel we've got a female character? <laughs> Well, I think, it, you know, the joke is more dog-centric. Yeah, no, but they're saying, like, it's not a boy, it's a girl this time. Sure. That's, like, literally the, the how they created the title. <laughs> what makes the plot superior in Torchwood is that a girl's best friend is a lot of this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens for about 40 minutes until you get to some actual twists, some actual turns. In Torchwood, you've got a lot more 
this happens, but then this happens, therefore this happens. You've got events that cause other events and events that surprise you. Sarah Jane actually has curiosity. She picks up the phone. She makes a call. She wants to know what happened. But all of her inquiries get waved away. She's not able to really drive the the story the same way that Gwen is, where she's able to move things forward and get redirected and make inroads in a way that generates a truly riveting story. To, to briefly shit on my own episode, <laughs> isn't it weird that it's called Canine and Company and Canine's like the bitch character? The weirder thing to me is that like they're not explicit enough about who's the company. Well, it's got to be Sarah Jane and Brendan, right? Well, honestly, the episode, like if you're not really familiar with TV... Do you really know it's Brendan? If you watch a lot of TV, you know it's Brendan. Right. But otherwise, Brendan could easily be a one-off character. Yeah, there's not really that moment where they're like, this is the team. Yeah. They never have their team moment. I don't I don't know what... Hey, there's no even Canine and Company shot. To be fair, there's also no moment where the team stands on top of a building that has no way of getting up onto that building. Minuses. Minus points. Get on top oh. of the building. <laughs> they should have more Batman scenes, is what you're saying? You know what I mean? Brendan's not even in the opening sequence. K-9's barely in the opening sequence. Like, his he's, voice is... He's in the opening sequence a lot. There are reverse shots of his little head turning around. And then it goes, K-9! K-9! I knew we were just going to talk about that this whole episode. <laughs> we're just us going, K-9! Hey. Uh-oh. Theme uh-oh. song versus theme song. I pointed out a song. weakness. Uh-oh. I don't even remember the theme song to Torchwood, and I've seen the whole series. There you go. Equally memorable. <laughs> no, I mean... Shut up. I do like when it occasionally pops up when Captain Jack shows up in Doctor Who. Sure. But, uh... As good as K-9 and Company. You know, they went for, like, a very... It's a super short... It's not even really a title sequence. It's just that T no. logo, and then there's some some people's names float up there. Well, it says... In the, yeah, and then it says Torchwood, right? At the very end. But, uh, yeah. Fuck that theme song. <laughs> it ain't got nothing on K-9. It, well, okay. I mean, th- this is... We'll use the British expression. This is chalk and cheese to the most extreme here. Is Are we enjoying K-9 and company in what sense? <laughs> hey, I don't foresee myself ever going out and buying the Torchwood theme on vinyl. <laughs> All right. Touche. That's a genuine point for K-9 and company. <laughs> May it be the only one you score, sir. I want to almost say, but I know you just uh, from our previous discussion, you're, you're going to immediately disagree. I, I, I want to say that the villain is stronger in K-9 and company. Just because what it's... What the hell are you even saying? It's there. Like, it's it's a through line throughout the story. You know, the very first scene we get to know, it's the coven. And so there's some, like, stuff to, to build on there. So the, the villain that has three scenes where they do the exact same thing, and you say that they're there, but we literally never know if they actually do anything. Well, w- real live human sacrifice cults don't do anything. You know, they kill a person and then nothing happens. It's Doctor Who, supposedly. Oh my God, there's nothing. Come on. You you know this is a terrible argument. I mean, the closest we get is a story about a hailstorm. Hey, hailstorms are dangerous. You know how much they can cost to your car when it gets dented? I mean, that's true. Yeah. And crops. That was the main point of the crops. episode. Yeah. It's, it's really good if you're afraid of crop damage. This is the episode for you. Well, as you know, I am a subscriber to FarmersOnly.com, so <laughs> I am afraid of crop damage. That is a weird joke. Yeah. <laughs>
I wonder they they probably don't have that over in the UK, huh? They don't. No one knows farmers, that anywhere. Farmersonly.co.uk. Don't be concerned about regional <laughs> unawareness. Just be concerned that's about a, that's general. A, that's unawareness. an American thing. I know, like everywhere no, in America. But no one, no one gets that joke. <laughs> <laughs> farmers do. But I, yeah, okay. We'll make a Venn diagram of our listeners and farmers and see what happens. <laughs> I apologize if you're listening to this while tilling. <laughs> K9 has more robot dogs. Uh, uh-oh. I don't know if I can compete there. But uh, we'll, <laughs> I've got more pterodactyls. It's weird. That is weird. I, I don't know. I like, I never understood that one at all. I guess it just came out of the rift. Yeah, so like let's keep it. Presumably, that's what's going on with the one at the end too. Is that it's a different per- pterodactyl that just showed oh, it up? Must be the same one. Then why did they let it out? Why did they order pizza with Torchwood on the name? All right, here's the thing. It's it, it doesn't really say in any way that K9 and Company's better, but here's just a thing to shit on Torchwood for a second. Okay. Do you ever like look at the set of uh, Torchwood three? The like the downstairs underneath Millennium Center. And do you ever just think it just looks like a giant TARDIS? No. And I also don't think that shit's on Torchwood and I like the set down there. There's like a big tube in the center that looks exactly like Time Rotor. It's probably, now that you mention it, designed to be sort of TARDIS reminiscent. But I, I quite like the look of Torchwood 3. I don't know. I just always felt like it was a... They could have had a little more spark of creativity there. Yeah. It's not nearly as creative as the shitty house from the... K9 and company. Well, what's she supposed to have? Like a big computer that comes out of the wall? Oh, wait. <laughs> That's from the Sarah Jane Adventures, folks. Which is weird that it's like K9 is in that as well. And she has like a different ward sort of. Yeah. It's essentially like this, the sequel to K9 and company. Or maybe K9 is. We haven't seen that. Yeah. But no, Sarah Jane Adventures, I guess, feels more like it. Hey, this uh, look at that. You know, my my show inspired a whole other show that's a, the same premise. Like clearly, they they thought there's a there's something to work with there. We're talking about spinoffs here. I don't know what kind of <laughs> argument you're trying to make. <laughs> I'm trying to make an argument that has anything in it. <laughs> uh, let me just defeat you. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you uh, the major, real, significant reason why. Torchwood is a more successful spinoff than Canine Company, which is you look at these two as episodes and they're launching and they're saying, this is what our role is going to be in the Doctor Who universe. And I think Torchwood makes the much clearer stance and the much louder, more definitive statement about this is how we're similar to Doctor Who, this is how we're different from Doctor Who, and this is our vision of what a series of Torchwood is going to look like. To build off of that, uh, you know, Doctor Who spinoffs, they've had kind of bad luck with not Everything. understanding what yeah. their audience is. Yeah. And Torchwood is, I think, the best example of coming right out the gate and then they're, they're saying, this is a show for adults and this is why. Yeah. I don't know who K9 and Company is for. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like K9 and Company, I try to think about it and, you know, I feel like if they'd made a choice to make the villain actually supernatural and clearly supernatural, I would have understood it more. But instead it's like, oh, is this like a Poirot show? You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess. 
Is that what it's going to be? Because it definitely seems like she's only going to be investigating things in that town. Yeah. So because of that, I was a little bit confused. Maybe the second episode was going to have fucking aliens in it. I feel like I don't know. That's funny because the second episode of Torchwood involves fucking aliens. (laughs) But that's the thing. In Torchwood, you know the second episode is going to be about fucking aliens. (laughs) That is no surprise. Uh Uh-huh. And I think that that clarity of vision is ultimately what makes, in this case, it indefensible to choose Canine Company, and specifically a girl's best friend. Well, I will say, we do know that the master was going to be in there at some point, so they were going to dip their toe into that. But we both agree that's baffling. Yeah. Uh, Canine Company loses. Canine. Canine. It's shutting down. Oh, shit, he's dying. Uh, why, did, why am I putting my dick on his forehead? <laughs> this is mean. I'm dying, master. Uh, I'm teabagging you. This is teabagging, canine. Keep your balls away from me, master. No, you can't help it. Stop twisting your little satellite Beep. dishes. I'm shooting your balls. Yeah, but there's not enough energy now. You're you're weak. This is a... I'm going to give you some of these good torchwood drugs. You think they'll work on a robot dog? I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'll just short circuit him. I don't like that you didn't continue the role play. Well, I had to explain what the laser noise was. I didn't know if it was good enough I was to be just, immediately uh, taken as laser noise. I was just achieving full erection. Oh, okay. Does this work for you, Master? Oh, yeah. Canine. And now that I've finished, it's time for a bonus. This week, we're enjoying a spinoff from Big Finish. It's the first episode of Gallifrey, Weapon of Choice. Fleet is to be armed with null space missiles. Oh, no, you don't, Narvin. Await further instructions, Narvin, out. I will not sanction this. You have no choice, Madam President. I need not remind you that your affection for these refugees must not be allowed to cloud our judgment or override our greater responsibilities. And I need not remind you that you are not the boss. In the premiere story of this political drama, Lady President of Gallifrey, Romana Devorah Trelunda, toils against a subversive terrorist group, Free Time, who believe that time travel should be a right of anyone with the technology. She recruits the help of another former companion, Leela, to infiltrate the group and bring it down from the inside. So, Edward, what did you think of Weapon of Choice? The first thing I want to say is, there's an expression, never judge a book by its cover, and uh, I absolutely hated the cover art for this. They all kind of have that same aesthetic of, like, monochromatic. I think it looks like not only fan fiction, but erotic fan fiction. (laughs) (laughs) I would look at that cover art and expect nothing but one hour of Romana and Leela scissoring and maybe some light kissing. Okay. Well, what bothers... so I was disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) What bothers me about it is... uh... The characters, both of them, feel so mature. Yeah. So much more mature than the last time we'd seen them in a series. And the image choices are them and, you know... As young as they've ever been in the show. Exactly. Like, why not go with modern-day Louise Jameson and uh, Lala Ward? Yeah, I feel the same way. So, more more seriously, I was a little bit disappointed with this. Because I've heard lots and lots of good things about Gallifrey. And you probably heard the same thing before you listened to it. The pitch is often described as it's like more like the West Wing than Doctor Who, or it's the West Wing in space. Yes. That it's a political drama. But it's really 
not that way at all, at least for this story. Maybe it finds that footing later. This story is just sort of a, a, a clunky thriller. Yeah, I've listened to almost all of Gallifrey. I'm not completely caught up, but I've listened to at least the first six series. And we won't spoil later episodes. We're just talking generalities here. Right. But this episode is in a lot of ways a setup. We get to know the players. We know the Time Lords, Romana. Uh, we, we know Leela is going to be involved somehow. And we learn about these other time-traveling races, such as the Monin Host. Yes. And then there's also this group, Free Time. And those all come together a lot better in political ways later on, even in series one. Yeah, the way the story comes together here, I really found it dense and confusing and ultimately, within this story, sort of unrewarding. Yeah, I I can see where you're coming from. There's a thing in storytelling where there's this balance of what you really want is the illusion of simplicity. The Lord of the Rings is probably the best ever example of this. It seems like the story is incredibly simple. It's just about taking a ring and throwing it into a fucking mountain. But in reality, it's a fucking insanely complicated story about elves fucking each other. I don't know what they do. Right? Oh, is that what happened? Yeah, I think so. This story really is very simple. Time Lord's got a bomb. Bad guys steal the bomb. They want to get the bomb back. But the added layers of complexity, I think, obfuscated that central story with convolution to a point where it was harder to appreciate the central story and harder to get connected to it. Especially because it's supposed to be political. A lot of that drama should have maybe stayed, especially at the early stages, within the halls of Gallifrey itself. Yeah, I wanted a lot more of that. Because we do get quite a few players. You know, uh, Romana is the, essentially, she's the president. And then there's Narvin, who is going to be a main character, and he's the head of the CIA. Yes. The Celestial Intervention Agency, not the American Central Intelligence. I I think he's the head of both. Could be. Congratulations for him, by the way, on the promotion. (laughs) But then, yeah, it continues. We get uh, Cardinal Braxiatel. Yes. uh, Let's talk uh, for a second about Braxiatel. Great voice performance. Yeah, he, he's really cool. He's one of those weird things that, like, when you're first getting into Doctor Who, you, like, see his name mentioned in a Wikipedia. Everywhere. Yeah. And you click on him and you're like, wait, that's a part of the canon? Yeah. <laughs> he's the Doctor's older brother. Yeah, it's crazy. Yep. Uh, I believe he was introduced in City of Death. Like, his character doesn't show up, but they mention him. They mention the Braxiatel that collection. That right, yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, the extended universe has sort of grown with him and made him into a much more important character. But they very rarely put him and the Doctor together. I'm trying to think of any stories, really, that put them together. Yeah, I feel like they interact very briefly later in Gallifrey, but there's a lot of scenes where Braxiatel is just talking about his brother and never in a fond way. It, it, he's an odd character, but like I said, I really do like him. I like his performance a lot in this. It's probably my favorite performance in this. Although I do want to talk about Lala War and Louise Jameson. I think they both slip back into their roles effortlessly, particularly Louise Jameson. Yeah, and I do want to say, uh, although it's hard to say much good things for this episode by itself, they are the reason you keep coming back to listen to more Gallifrey. Almost the core story is about this growing friendship between them. Absolutely. And uh, when we, we first meet Louise Jameson, we first run into Leela. She's talking sort of allegorically about her time with the doctor. As two lions, we were proud to walk the city. But one lion alone does not make a pride. There is not even the doctor. Not anymore. And it's a a very nice little line and sort of gives you 
a sense of what it's like for her now out there with the the non-time lord Gallifreyans, the outsiders. Yeah, I I really thought that there was a a rather beautiful line. It was her first line in the story. Behind it lies the city with all its certainties and comforts. Beyond it is the mercy of the wild. There is no wickedness here. But the pig bear and horse cat and bat snake are your equals in hunger and need. They mean you no cruelty when they chew on your bones. Yeah. Which is like, manages to both be like a pretty line, but also a very Leela line. Oh, classic Leela. I actually think she also has, in my opinion, the most powerful moment in the story. Which is later on when she's gone undercover and she's now convincing Nepenthe. By the way, I hate like half the names in this thing. I think Nepenthe is nice. I hate them. They're such like science fiction names. Baruch, whatever, with your bullshit apostrophe in there. Get out of here. <laughs> apostrophe. But she's trying to convince her that she is not a Time Lord and she doesn't like the Time Lords. Because they despise the unalike. They soothe with promises and flattery, but they promise only to deceive. They use too many words, but even the gentlest sounding may have a double meaning. And you can tell there's a lot of honesty in what she's saying. There's a lot of like, you know what? Fuck Tom Baker. Well, I, th- I, I don't think she's including the doctor in that. In the same way that the doctor often refers to the Time Lords in this weird distant sense. No, the Tom Baker thing was a joke because Louis Jameson and him didn't get on. <laughs> okay, <laughs> gotcha. But no, the, yeah, you're absolutely right that it's particularly in classic when it was more clear because he wasn't pining after them. It's more clear that the the doctor had that friction with the Time Lords. She's clearly taken up that same sentiment. So circling back to our classic entry this week, not only is there K9 in this story as well, he's in it twice. K9! 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 Both Marks 1 and 2 are in this story, and they interact in this way, and they seem to have like their own internet. Oh, you're talking about the uh, 45-minute love scene. Yes, when uh, they roll up onto each other and then just like... Oh, uh, can we get the clip of that here? Sure. But there is a fun little sequence in this where part of the whole going undercover thing involves canine pretending to be a criminal genius from the fifth galaxy. Yes. (laughs) My name is canine. I am a criminal genius from the Fifth Galaxy. Do not underestimate me, Mr. Arcadian. Which is perfect for him. And also that uh, Leela is his slave. There was like one issue, you know, most of the time jokes with K-9 are somebody saying like an idiom to him and Mm -hmm. he not understanding it in any way other than its literal sense. But in this, it's like the joke kept being that he would mess up. Like he he kept referring to Leela as mistress and then say, oh, I mean, slave. Uh-huh. And it's like, you're a robot. Yeah. You wouldn't mess up. Fix that subroutine, bitch. <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe nobody's repaired Leela's uh, canine in a long time. Yeah, he's devolved. He's become a savage like her. Yeah. And he'd live like an animal. He'll die like an animal! <laughs> it's a very relevant Doctor Who reference to this story. <laughs> I just want to talk about Arcadian for a second here. He's the uh, sort of knowledge broker criminal informant character in this story is that a name that you dislike mephistopheles arcadian 
I mean, it's sort of shitty, but it's all right. I, I like it. I mean, it's like a stupid name, but I like it. Yeah, I guess that's sort of how I feel about it. It's the least defensive of the stupid names. <laughs> but he had a line that I enjoyed. When he's brought in initially, sort of his fate is left up to the whim of Ramana. He says to her, Don't let them send me to the host world. I hear talk of instruments in their punishment cells, contrivances that would make an inquisitor blanch. I beg you as a fellow biped, show pity on poor Arcadian. And I just thought that his strategy was like, Come on, bro. Count the legs. <laughs> We're in this together. <laughs> yeah. Well, is it supposed to be because like the moan and host, maybe they don't have the same amount of legs? It's unclear. I made absolutely no connections whatsoever. I was just like, what the fuck? That's all you got? I got to ask you, you know, the, to no fault of the audio, because it was produced before, Mephistopheles Arcadian kind of sounds like Dorian Maldivar to me. Oh, yeah. I just pictured Dorian Maldivar. Yeah. They're the same character, 100%, too. 100%. Yeah. I imagine Jim 110% just talking about legs. <laughs> just being like, two. Good enough. I'm old. I'm fat. I've got two legs. Good enough. <laughs> and with that taken care of, we'll move on to some weapon of choice trivia. Gallifrey, as a series, was inspired by the TV series The West Wing. Oh, so it was actually inspired by the West Wing. Yeah, they, it's intended to be a West Wing meets Doctor Who. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that that was a, an actual sort of intentional thing. Yeah. I've never watched the West Wing. I've only seen the first episode, but uh, I don't get the feeling that they nailed it. Maybe they were inspired by the idea of the West Wing. I think so. They saw like a commercial for the West Wing. This is not the first story to feature Romana as president of Gallifrey. She appeared in several Eighth Doctor adventures, including Neverland and Zagreus, but the premise was introduced in the Apocalypse element. The Apocalypse element was also the introduction of the Monin Host. I totally forgot them. Yeah, I uh, don't remember them at all. These four temporal powers become like a very big part of Gallifrey as the story goes on, and there's a lot of big political struggle between them. Yeah, so you I'll, start I'll to interrupt remember them. you here. I barely remember them from Weapon of Choice, <laughs> so uh, I, I don't care. Okay. I'll just strike that trivia from my book. Gallifrey is one of the storylines featured in Big Finish's crossover release, The Worlds of Doctor Who. Ah, okay. I haven't heard that, but uh, I hear it's pretty good. The character of Narvin, who makes his first appearance in this story, would also go on to appear in the ongoing Eighth Doctor Big Finish storyline. Yeah, and he's something of a fan favorite, right? Yeah, people really like him. Uh, I think it's because the actor is attractive. Oh, is that true? <laughs> I don't know why that would apply uh, to audio. I know. It's so funny. There are so many big finish the characters who, like, I still don't know what they look like. I look up, you know, what most of the companions look like. And then, like, in the case of India Fisher, I ignore it. <laughs> All right. Well, weird slam on India Fisher. <laughs> you weren't in any of these stories. Don't know how that happened. Canine. Canine. And that brings us to the end of our offspring-themed episode of The Twin Dilemma. This week, we could only pick one son, and we went with Everything Changes over Canine and Company. Well, I mean, we didn't do it. I, I did it by uh, beating you in The Dilemma. We both tried to go for it. You tried, but you failed. Mm, canine. It was, <laughs> it was like Sophie's Choice, but with a more clear loser. <laughs> with an ugly baby. I have been Fenric Lamar. I have been Edward Grove. And we thank you for tuning in and hope you'll stick with us next week for more adventures in Doctor Who.
Bye. Bye. Tune in next week for our theme, Distress. Small finish. We love dumb shit.